0: Hi, Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video, I want to talk about something that I referenced in my last video, which I kind of mistakenly referenced as a video that I've already done, which is the Disaster of the Gladden Fields. And if that doesn't ring any bells, that's because most of the material and that name itself comes from not Lord of the Rings, not Silmarillion, but the Unfinished Tales. Alternate older cover. Uh, the Unfinished Tales is basically a collection of writings that Tolkien put out. Well, I say put out. He, he wrote these different things, and they ended up being collected by Christopher Tolkien later. But they relate to things in the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion that he never really fully developed and included in the, in those main stories. But they illuminate things that are referenced in them. And The Disaster of the Gladden Fields is basically the story of how Isildur after defeating Sauron, lost the ring in, uh, well, if you've seen the movie, it's a little bit different, but in Peter Jackson's movie, it looks like an ambush. It's not quite the same in the actual story that Tolkien ended up writing about it, but I'm gonna talk about that in just a little bit. But I'm gonna do kind of several videos on different things in the Unfinished Tales, but since I've already referenced the Gladden Fields disaster, I wanted to go ahead and cover that one now, so I can go ahead and link to this video in the previous video. That being said, let's go ahead and get started. Okay, first let's kind of figure out where we are on the map, and since I brought this map out last time, let's take a look here. We've got, over here is where the River Gladden runs into the River Anduin, and that's where the Gladden Fields are. So, as I discussed in the video on the Kingdom of Arnor, Uh, originally Elendil was king in Arnor, Isildur and Anarion, Isildur's brother, were joint rulers over the southern kingdom of Gondor. After the war, Anarion was killed, Elendil was killed, and so Isildur was going to take up the high kingship in the north, in Arnor, and he was going to leave Gondor under the rule of Anarion's son. So after he kind of Arranged for that in Gondor, he began to travel north to Arnor, up the banks of the Anduin. And, of course, that's why this disaster happens so far north in the Gladden Fields. So, he's traveling north with a a sizable contingent of men, but nothing huge, because at the end of the war he's not expecting any serious battle. Uh, And he is beyond Lorien, but still not quite to where the... Uh, the Woodland realm elves would have been in murkwood and sun goes down and suddenly there's a scream from orcs and of course, his men all know what this means they're about to be attacked. Sun has gone down, and so they're you know the orcs are no longer afraid of coming out in the open, and so he basically has the his men arrange themselves in a shield wall, and the orcs come at him and the initial attack doesn't really succeed, and this is where it starts to diverge from the Peter Jackson prologue a little bit, but the uh, basically the orcs come in a huge attack. The Numenorians, the Dunedain, they have a shield wall and basically repel the first attack. The orcs fall back initially, kind of regroup, and at this point uh, Isildur basically decides, well... We're four days out from trying to reach where the Woodland elves are. We're already well beyond where Lorien is, so we're probably not going to get any help. And so essentially at this point, they kind of try to double time it to see if they can make any kind of headway at all before getting attacked again because the orcs kind of withdraw, and he's hoping that that means that they've kind of given up, even though apparently they were outnumbered according to the story about 10 to 1. Now, again, this is really different from the Peter Jackson version because in the Peter Jackson version you get the idea they literally just kind of come out of nowhere, ambush the Dúnedain, and that's kind of it. Isildur puts on the ring, jumps in the river, and is gone. But in here it's a little bit different. There's a lot more psychological motivation and whatnot going on, and that's where it gets interesting. So let's get into some of that. So one of the reasons that it gets psychologically interesting is because among the group of people traveling with Isildur is his oldest son, uh, who is named Elendur. We never really hear anything about him outside uh, this this little short story in the Unfinished Tales, but basically the idea is, you know, this is his heir. This is the person who is supposed to take up the kingship after he dies, and it looks like they're all going to die, and... Now he of course he has another younger son who is being uh kind of raised in Rivendell at the time, but you know, his he he also has two other sons with him at the time as well. And it looks like they're all going to get killed because as they travel along they realize the orcs are still there, they're not actually going to give up. And the story kind of points out that part of this is probably due to the fact that he is carrying the ring and therefore whether the orcs realize that or not, they are, as all servants of Sauron are, drawn to the Ring in some kind of murky way to try to, in some sense, re- rescue it. Not not consciously, of course, but that's what they're being drawn to do. So, Isildur at this point is basically, you know, thinking, "Man, I kind of wish I had destroyed the Ring now." Uh, And he has this back-and-forth conversation with Elendor, his son, at a couple of different points, and they're talking about the possibility of what's going to happen. And he also uh, calls his squire to him. That's the term Tolkien uses. I mean, I'm sure it's not quite like what we would tend to normally think of as a squire. It's more like his just personal, uh, somewhere between a valet and a squire type thing. But he has this squire named Ohtar, and he basically gives him the shards of Narsil and the ring of Barahir and basically says, we're probably not going to get out of this, but these things need to return to Rivendell as heirlooms of my family, whether or not I make it. So you take these and go, nobody's going to call you a coward. I told you to do it. So he goes, the orcs kind of just let him go. Nobody stops him and he makes it. And that's, kind of where the only real information, uh, direct information of the, the disaster of the Fields comes from. The rest of it is, you can either say that it's the surmise of Gandalf, it's not really clear in Tolkien's writing how this information came to light and how he ended up writing it, or if it really is just him writing as a third-person omniscient. You know, normally it's interesting because the way that Tolkien writes, it's usually it's from the perspective of a character who is either has knowledge or has made inferences. You know, Gandalf says a lot of things to Frodo in the chapter of uh, where he explains a lot of the history of the ring, but he says explicitly some of this is guesswork, but it's pretty educated guesswork. (laughs) It's not really clear what this category falls into. So it could be that it's similarly kind of Gandalf or somebody else among the wise guessing what is the most likely thing that happened, or it could be something more like Tolkien is just telling us what happened because he has the power to do that as a third-person omniscient narrator. So, But regardless, the next thing that happens, the Dunedain continue on, and the orcs are getting ready to attack again. The the more keen-eyed among the Dunedain have noticed they're starting to creep in, so again, the the Dunedain kind of hunker down, they get ready to defend against the inevitable inevitable attack against much greater forces, and of course, at this point, Isildur realizes if the orcs are going to fight us in earnest, we are going to die, because we're heavily outnumbered, even though we have, you know, better soldiers, because the Dunedain at the time were, you know, very strong, very capable, very well armed, the orcs are still just going to have so many more personnel, it's, it's it's going to be a disaster. So they get ready to defend, and then comes kind of the last section, and that's where it gets really interesting. So let's go to that. So the orcs finally do attack again, and when they do, the Numenorians, the Dúnedain, they are still holding their own, at least for a little while. Uh, they're defending on kind of a couple of different sides. The defense is basically being kind of managed by Isildur on one end and Elendur on his other. Two of his sons get killed rather quickly. Elendur realizes this is hopeless, we're about to die, and of course he knows that Isildur has the ring. He goes to Isildur and says, we're losing really badly here. The ring that you took from Sauron was, of course, part of his power. Can't you use it to either control these orcs or at least cow them you know, make them afraid so that they back off. And Isildur basically says, unfortunately, I don't think I can. I now realize that I'm not, you know, a a more powerful enough person to use this in in a way that would really be relevant at this point. And he also says, I'm also just afraid of the pain of it because whenever he first took it, it was basically hot as a live coal. The term that Tolkien uses in his preference for archaic terms is a gleed, but that's what he means. It's a a coal. And so when he first takes it from Sauron's hand, it's literally fire hot. And so he's, he's afraid of experiencing that pain again. And so, you know, quite apart from the fact that he realizes he doesn't have the innate power to use the ring in the way that he would need to in this situation, he's also just afraid of touching it. He's got it, you know, kind of wrapped up in a wallet and hanging on a chain. And Elendor kind of... Realizes, well, we're we're doomed. Um, they kind of go back to fighting, and then Lindor comes back and says, well, you may not be able to use the ring to do anything about this, but you're gonna have to do what you told Okhtar to do, and you're gonna have to take the ring because at all costs we can't let the orcs get the ring because, you know, if it is, you know, something that as powerful as we seem to think it is we can't let it fall into enemy hands, you absolutely have to get it out, because they had actually already had a conversation about the ring needs to be taken to the keepers of the three elven rings, which indicates, by the way, that he knew who they were, or at least somebody who did know who they were. So, Isildur basically says, well, you're right, I just kind of needed you to say that for me to not feel totally guilty about doing it, because... Contrary, again, to kind of Peter Jackson's version of the story, Isildur is not like every other man in Peter Jackson's storytelling, just instantly susceptible to the pull of the ring and totally corrupted. Isildur was actually a great hero in his day. He did some very heroic things, was considered a very good guy. His not destroying the ring was not a pure act of selfishness. In fact, whenever El- Elrond tells him you should destroy this thing, he basically says, you know, I want to keep this as a weregild of my father, which this is an interesting linguistic side note, but weregild means man gold. It's like werewolf, man wolf. And essentially what he's saying is this is this is the price that I am claiming for the loss of my father from Sauron. This this is, you know, I have to get some compensation for that. You know, in the old days, if you killed somebody, especially in Norse and other Northern European cultures, that's kind of what would happen is you would, you know, if you killed somebody by accident, you would kind of be expected to pay a certain amount of money that was considered the value of that person. It's kind of like in modern times, if somebody gets killed in a car accident, you can, you know file a suit for wrongful death, and you can get money damages based on some value, and it's, of course, murky, but basically that's Sildor's view of what the ring is for him. It's like, I have to get something out of this. I've lost my father and my brother. This is what I'm taking. I'm taking the ring. You know, this is this is the price that I'm going to be paid. And he, he's not looking at it as this thing is just... Awesome, and I want it. It, it, there's a more natural human connection there. And so that helps to explain why, in Tolkien's version of the story, he's not a complete dirtbag the way that Peter Jackson makes him look <laughs> in the prologue to the Lord of the Rings movies. So all that basically is an explanation for why they seem so different. So anyway, Sildor then takes the ring at the insistence of his son, And he does flee the battlefield. Of course, all the Dunedain end up being killed. The elves later come along, discover what's happened, and they do end up hunting down the orcs, but of course it's too late. Now, the interesting thing is when uh, Isildur escapes with the ring, we get some extra events that are also a little bit different from Peter Jackson's story, and that's going to be the final segment of this video, so let's go to that. So just as an extra tiny bit of background, Isildur at the time is wearing a, uh, not a crown per se, it's a, uh, a circlet basically with a gem in the front. And that's the, uh, it's that along with a scepter of Anumanas is the royal accoutrements for the northern kingdom of Arnor. And the, the thing that he's wearing actually has a name, it's called the Elindilirr. And it's um, believed to have been created by Celebrimbor or at least, or one of his uh, ancestors, Feanor or uh, Curufin. And it's like many things that were made by the great um, craftsmen of the old world, it kind of has a light of its own. It has very special properties, and so it by itself has kind of a lot of it creates kind of a sense of awe when you see it 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 very much designates kingship but when he puts the ring on when he comes to the banks of the anduin actually he puts it on before that but it it blazes you know as if it's kind of a fire and you kind of get some extra things like that in lord of the rings whenever frodo holds the ring or when Sam holds the ring, Sting will kind of seem like it has a flame along its edges. It's a similar kind of property, but the Alendilmir being a much more potent artifact than even Sting, everybody who sees this thing kind of light up whenever he puts the ring on, just, they don't even bother to try to stop it. They just all kind of run away in fear, men and orcs. So he gets to the Anduin, the River Anduin, completely unopposed. And he jumps in, he tries to swim to the other side. Now the problem is, the Anduin is a really big river, and it's fairly swift moving. And so he has a really hard time getting to the other side. In the process of getting to the other side, he loses the ring. And when he loses the ring, of course, he becomes visible. But he's not shot by orcs who are looking for him from the other side. Because, I mean, at that point he had escaped them, and he was already pretty far downriver because of the current. But the problem is when he gets to the other side, there are orcs on the other side as well who may or may not have been, you know, acting in conjunction with the orcs who started the fight. And when he comes up out of the river, the Elendomir, even though he's not still wearing the ring, is still, you know, shining because of its just innate properties. And he stands up and being this really big you know, Dunedain, because at the time you actually, if you read some of Tolkien's other writings, Dunedain, hobbits are called halflings because they're considered literally half-height. So, you know, if the average hobbit is three foot six, which is a, you know, that's one thing Peter Jackson at least got right, then that tells you what about Numenorians? at, you know, whenever they kind of originally came around. They're seven feet tall. These guys are big, big men. And, So he stands up, this really huge Dunedain, and of course, he's probably bigger than average, being the king, and with this blazing star on his brow, and some orcs who are over there just kind of see it and, you know, virtually panic, but they let off a couple of wild stray arrows before they run, and he gets shot in the throat. And that's how, that's how Isildur dies. It's not a, a totally inglorious death by, oops, the ring fell off, and then he gets shot in the back. But it is still kind of like a, well, dang, he made it all the way across the river, and then he just gets hit by a random arrow. And so he dies there, the lindomir is lost, eventually, of course, they make kind of a replica, but it's never the same. The ring, of course, is lost in the banks of the Anduin. He didn't even realize that he was missing it at the time that he got out of the Anduin, probably. And he dies. Nobody ever finds his body. The only things that survived the battle, really, were the Shards of Narsil and the Ring of Barahir that he had sent Oktar away with before the battle really got started. So that's how the ring was actually lost. Now, obviously, Peter Jackson may not have even read the unfinished tales before he did his prologue and either way you weren't going to put that whole story into the prologue that's a little bit too much information up front but it does serve to highlight some interesting differences mainly again going back to the character of isildur himself and again this kind of highlights the the problem i think that peter jackson has of trying to make all men kind of scumbags except for aragorn who is the one person who can you know resist the ring whereas in Tolkien's world, it's it's not quite that that simple. So I think that's an interesting thing to focus on, and it makes a really good entry into the Unfinished Tales because it's, it's something we kind of already know about and something that we would like to know more about. And so that's a good place to start for the Unfinished Tales. Eventually I'll do some more on this in one of those videos. It's going to be about the five wizards. Uh, If you haven't heard about the Five Wizards, then stay tuned for later videos. Uh, But that wraps up the Disaster of the Gladden Fields. If you didn't know what that was, now you do. And you have a little bit more insight into how the ring was lost and why the ring was lost. Which is, in some ways, more important. So I hope you found that video interesting and entertaining and educational. Uh, there's lots of material that Tolkien wrote, which unfortunately never made it into kind of official publications. Fortunately, we've got Christopher Tolkien to bring us all kinds of great stuff like that, and hopefully he continues to do it for several more years. But uh, The Unfinished Tales, seriously, if you do not have a copy of The Unfinished Tales and you'd like to know more about some kind of murky areas of Middle-earth history, it's a good place to get some really interesting information, especially if you've also read The Silmarillion. It covers all three ages of Middle-earth, so it's got a lot of great stuff in it. Uh, I will link to a a place where you can get the Unfinished Tales in the description. I'll also link to the previous video I did on the Kingdom of Arnor, since I referenced that. Um, And if you enjoy the video, please give it a like. Please also subscribe if you want to learn more about Tolkien and his writings. And you can also follow me at Twitter at JRRTLore. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namaste.